Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast, or you can subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. Views expressed by participants are personal. Today, we get a peek into the life of an executive at a global media agency. Scott Stewart, Managing Director, Head of Strategy for Maxis Canada, stops by to chat. Scott's path into the media world didn't start directly out of school. After taking some time to be a self-proclaimed snowboard bum in Kelowna, British Columbia, Scott landed his first media gig at the legendary Canadian advertising firm Vickers & Benson. From there, he rose through the industry ranks, assuming senior roles at agencies such as Visium, Karat, and UM. So what's Scott's secret to success? More than anything else, he credits having great mentors. Currently, you're the Managing Director, Head of Strategy for Maxis Canada. For our listeners who might be unfamiliar, what is Maxis Canada and what does your role entail? Uh, Maxis Canada was the, uh, I guess, the fourth media agency brand to join uh, WPP's Group M. Uh, my role here is essentially uh, in the simplest uh, definition is to lead our strategy product across our enterprise. I spend a great deal of my time um, helping, as I guess, essentially solve our clients' business problems. Um, I'm always looking for the the key consumer insight, which uh, uh, that key nugget, which will be essential in really driving uh, strategy and creating um, distinct competitive advantage for our clients in today's marketplace. And even though you're based in Toronto right now, that's not where you're from. You're from Montreal. I am from Montreal. I moved to uh, Toronto when I was uh, quite young, but uh, remained and still am a diehard Habs fan. So. I-, I love when I'm asking anyone from outside of Toronto where they're from. And usually if they mention they're from Ottawa or if they're from Montreal, the first thing they have to do is put their foot down and go, I have to declare that I am not a Leafs <laughs> fan whatsoever. Well, I also declare it when you walk into my house because the first thing you see is my chair from the Montreal Forum in my uh, in my hallway so <laughs> it's interesting though because you are a big leaps or sorry excuse me sorry a big habs fan i know Correct. i know you're yep. giving me that look but you credit bobby clark as being your hero growing up and he played for the philadelphia flyers 100 percent. yeah no it's one of those things i mean even like when i was born uh the first thing my dad uh, bought me when he found out he was having a boy was a gila fleur jersey um but my my idol uh growing up um you know playing hockey and uh just in life was uh was bobby clark i wore number 16 in every sport i played out a tribute to him and uh, uh just learned a lot from him about the kind of player i wanted to be it's kind of funny that you mentioned the sweater. Do you remember that one children's book that we all read growing up called The Sweater? The young Habs fan gets a Leafs jersey. I do. So your father is like, I'm going to get a Game <laughs> Fleur jersey. And you're like, no, I want a Bobby Clark shirt. Pretty much, yeah. No, I wasn't in church like in uh, at the end of uh, the hockey sweater where I prayed a thousand moths would come down and, and eat that. Which, by the way, that was the first uh, book <laughs> I ever bought my, my, my son who turned one about two weeks ago. But yeah, no, he was um, – he was just the guy, you know, five nothing, a hundred nothing from Flin Flon, Manitoba. And if he didn't play hockey, probably would have been working in the mines there. But um, yeah, nobody was tougher or more relentless or most importantly cared more than Bobby Clark. And I think that's what made him a winner. And, and I was doing a bit of background research on Bobby Clark. Apparently, he was probably the one of the first known diabetic professional Correct. hockey players. I know that from my speech about him in grade three, actually. And I had no idea what diabetes was, but Bobby Clark wanted it. I remember asking my parents, like, 
you know, I want diabetes too. And they're like, no, no, you don't. No, you don't. You're small enough for the, you know, that kind of thing. That, that, that's not the secret yeah. to a great slap shot. No, it's whatsoever. not. No, it's not. But It's uh, a crazy story because apparently he with his manager had to go down to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and get a letter that said to scouts, no, 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 no. he's diabetic, but he can play just so correct. they take him yeah. seriously. Yeah, when he was drafted, absolutely. And that would, would have been the closest hospital growing up in, in Manitoba. That would have been, you know, he literally had to go down to the States and get clearance to play. So, you know, I guess looking back and his position, not only with the Philadelphia Flyers for many years, but as their general manager and what he gave back, not only to that hockey team, but the city, I guess uh, somebody did a great job in taking a chance on him. So, And that's true because he was a one-team player. He didn't go anywhere else. That's correct. You yeah. don't see that very often yep. anymore, that kind of loyalty. Absolutely. So coming out of university, what was your very first gig? Well, I mean uh, – you know, if I had to say my first gig, uh, it was as a um, uh, a professional snowboard bum. Um, you know, <laughs> once university was done, um, my friends and I headed out west to uh, to spend a uh, hundred plus days on the mountain, um, based out of uh, Kelowna, British Columbia. So, again, every morning I would get on the lift chair and say another day on the job, and it was quite incredible to do that. But um, actually, my first uh, my first real job was in media. I was very fortunate. I had come back, um, wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. A friend of mine at a, a company called Hunter Straker, who worked in their um, packaging graphic design center, had received a fax. And um, in 99, I think that's how people still communicated with random fax. It was a, <laughs> a very targeted um I met him for a beer and some wings that night. And he said, uh, oh, you have a business degree. Is this kind of says numbers? And I didn't even know really what media was, but I did know that adver advertising sounded pretty cool. So put the shirt and tie on and uh, that I hadn't worn since my uh, university commencement. And uh, off I went to an interview with uh, little or barely any knowledge about what I would end up doing for the next 16 years. But let's talk a little bit about you bridging from snowboarding to that first gig. <laughs> but at what point when you were being a snowboard instructor, because I've been fresh out of school as well, it's kind of one of the more relaxing years if you look back with hindsight that you shouldn't have taken it too seriously. And you went out there having fun, but what kind of clicked with you that said, okay, I've got to stop this and I've got to go get a day job? Um, you know what? It was it was literally uh, – I can actually tell you the day I walked into a snowboard shop in, in Kelowna, British Columbia – and the guy behind the counter was wearing a hooded sweatshirt and uh, a Burton baseball hat and was about 30 years old. And I think uh, <laughs> he didn't have to say a word. It was just, I just didn't want to be behind a, a counter at 30 years old wearing a, a hooded sweatshirt telling a bunch of teenagers back about the good old days. So uh, it was, you know what, it was just too good to last. And anything that great will obviously eventually deteriorate. So I, I wanted to leave it out there on the mountains and uh, head back to uh, Toronto with uh, some pretty good powder days under my belt. So, And you landed at Vickers and Benson. Correct. And you Absolutely. call it the best year, uh, your best, your first year in the business and one of the best, it, if not yeah. the best. You couldn't, uh, I mean, at the time in 1999, 2000, I mean, that was the spot. It was over 250 employees, um, you know, full service agency, you know, it had uh, Bank of Montreal, McDonald's. It was, uh, it was just such a, pleasurable first experience. I mean, everybody was young and vibrant and I stopped making plans on Friday because everybody would go to uh, this little bar across the street called Kramer's and it was just, <laughs> honestly, it was it was work meets social life. It was just such a great time. 
And how did you land the gig at Visium as the director of strategy? I was working at uh, at MediaVest at the time, and uh, a gentleman named uh, the late Bruce Classen and actually uh, had reached out. I guess they were uh, going through some tougher years and were looking to rebuild. Um, a good friend of mine and, and Group M colleague, Derek Bopulsing, worked there. And funny, going back to Vickers and Benson, uh, we were media assistants together and uh, and friends and colleagues. And after a few few meetings, um, you know, some good discussions, uh, you know, Bruce is like, well, we're rebuilding. And, you know, I proudly declared I'm a builder and I think this will work out great. Um, and uh, given the fact that my good buddy Derek worked there, it was uh, pretty much a no-brainer. So, um, you know, when uh, when I looked at it, it was a pretty easy decision. I got to kind of leapfrog the career a couple levels and, uh, and it turned out to be, uh, you know, a great decision, a great career decision because over the you know, the next five years I worked there, we went from Genesis Media um, and then the sale to Aegis and then watching it become Genesis uh, Visium and ultimately Visium and um, being really competitive in the marketplace and winning some great pieces of business and getting to work on some great pieces of business. Um, it was just an incredible experience. Tell me a bit about Bruce Classen because that's a name I've heard before from other friends and colleagues of mine in the industry. He sounds like he was quite a character and kind of one of the last of the old Mad Men Club, if you will. You can say that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Bruce was, um, you know, I guess uh, uh, for me anyway, per, I'm going to speak from my personal experience, was an incredible mentor in, in many ways. I mean, he treated me like a son. He was a, he was a pretty straight shooter and you never really, uh, you never really had to guess where – uh, he he was coming from, and I guess that's the nice way of putting it. Um, but he was a real pirate, uh, and and I mean that um, in the, pirates a dynamic term, the most complimentary way. Like okay. you know, in terms of uh, he saw things a lot different than a lot of people, um, and he did things um, that a lot of people in the industry weren't doing. But you know, I remember even uh, you know early on uh, in my tenure of working with him. You know, he sat me down. And he said, "Look, Scott, like we're not going to have media discussions. I hired you because I know you can take you, you can do the job. You and I are going to have business conversations, and um, you know, at a really young age, learning all about P and Ls and overhead, and you know, creative ways of making money uh, through media. Um, and uh, like, I mean, my favorite thing, you know, just about Bruce is, you know, and I." I I, I do want to call out that I don't think the industry did enough or said enough when he passed away because I think he was a very important person um, in this business. Uh, you know, I worked for him under private ownership and then eventually under multinational ownership. But, you know, um, he was always very protective of his team. And, you know, what I appreciated from him was he really let you be you and he really let you kind of align with your strengths in the company and really focus into those areas that, that interest you. Was his leadership consistent or did his, the way he managed, was it consistent from private ownership to being part of a big holding company? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, when you, when you sell, you, you, you step back and I think, you know, I think that was really hard for him, right? Because, you know, when you, when you're stepping away from something you built yourself, um, you know, it's just, uh, I guess that was for him, I, I, I don't think he liked not working for himself. I think his vision was always to work for himself. But, you know, he said something really smart to me once that, you know, um, never go into business if you don't have an exit plan. And I know he had been uh, trying to put it for sale for quite a while. But, uh, 
Um, yeah, there's definitely a difference in, in cultural shifts when, when that happened. But, uh, you know, I, like I said, I'm, I mean, I'm just very grateful for the time I got to work with them. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was actually, uh, I hadn't seen him about five years and, um, I heard the news when he passed and it was, uh, it was kind of, kind of shocking. It kind of really hit home because it was actually on my birthday. Oh no. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was, it was an interesting train ride home when I got the note from somebody and just kind of, you know, thought about that last conversation we had on my last day when I was leaving the agency and he called a meeting with me at seven thirty in the morning and, and gave me some great wisdom and, and some great pieces of advice. And, uh, you know, I guess, um, you know, the compliment he paid me that morning, uh, which I guess will remain personal, but, uh, that means more to me than any accolade or, or award or new business account that, uh, I've ever won. So digital wasn't as prominent back in 2004 as it was now. What medium or media kept you the busiest and what clients did you work on? Give yeah. Insight into that. Yeah. When I started, when I moved over there, I mean, digital, digital was there, but it hadn't really come into its own. Right. I mean, the whole ad network and group of sites thing, um, was just starting to take off and, you know, it was pretty, it was still very direct, like portals and publishers. Um, but TV for sure. I mean, you know, TV, but that was pretty easy. TV was a real treat compared to, uh, to other media, especially, uh, for national clients. Um, uh, the group I was in, we did a lot of radio and not just major and secondary markets. Like, I mean, I know where boys vein is, right. So because of, because of doing radio, so literally laying in from East to West, uh, the time alone to, you know, the time alone spent planning that, uh, let alone to buy in, you know, 50 plus markets, calculating, uh, uh, calculating spill, doing micro BBM cell analysis. I don't even think people do that anymore. I've had to touch uh, <laughs> buy sheets like that. That, that, that keeps me up at night. Yeah. I mean, does anyone do micro BBM cell analysis anymore? <laughs> you know, I haven't seen it since I've been in broadcast, but at least I was working in television where there weren't as many micro markets as there were in radio. Radio <laughs> is, radio really is the local medium. That's for sure. Absolutely. I mean, we also, we had, we had auto as well. So we booked a ton of newspaper and, you know, building out 52 week schedules and, uh, you know, it's pretty laborious when you're, you're, you're printing on 11 by 17 paper. Um, just the amount of planning, sizing, costing, negotiations, um, discrepancies from hell. So anyone, uh, um, out there has ever done newspaper discrepancies will feel my pain there. And I also realized when I worked at a, uh, an agency that had the Canadian government, why, uh, getting sent there was a punishment because <laughs> oh, you've got to be completely in line. A <laughs> hundred plus titles. They a, audit everything too. It's just, yeah, absolutely. So, um, a lot of time, there was a lot of labor back then. We weren't in the, um, we weren't into automation and, you know, I guess efficient, efficiently working with our with our systems and financial systems in place like we do now. So you packed your bags and you moved west to Calgary to work at Trigger. Before we get into your role there, I mean, what made you want to leave Toronto and go to Calgary? I didn't. I uh, I mean, at first I was just like when I when I met the the gentleman who had uh, broken out on his own. I mean, it was a it was a hundred plus person full service agency um, that was formerly called Proximity. Um, and the owner and I, uh, I mean, the owner is here in Toronto and, uh, he made a good sell and a good pitch. And, uh, so I guess I just chalked it up to an adventure and, uh, an entrepreneurial spirit, I guess. I mean, I had a lot of fun in Calgary. Um, I made some great friends and met some really good people and, uh, actually a lot of really great media minds who, uh, 
are quietly going about their business and making a ton of money doing great advertising uh, and media work, um, I guess, without the uh, the buckle of being attached to a holding company. So um, you could really... Uh, you could really do better work. You also had time to think. Um, That's a good point. Uh, I used to manage the West Coast when I was at Astral Digital years ago, and I found that it was so much more relaxed there. People made time for you to hear your pitches, to get back to them, to do everything properly, and there wasn't this rush, rush, here's an RFP, I needed it an hour ago. I think that speaks a lot to the, the, the media community as well and in Vancouver and Calgary and Western Canada. Um I mean, one thing you get there that you don't always get here is time. And it's not just, you know, time to eat your lunch. It's time to solve a business problem. Um, so, yeah, there's some limitations in terms of um, research and tech and data sciences available. But, I mean, what I saw was some really good strategic thinking on regional businesses that you know, really demonstrated a real, indus- real understanding of their client's industry and a lot of time and effort put into, you know, really gleaning true and honest insights. So that was a, that was a big takeaway for me. And, you know, the two years I spent there, um, when I packed my bags, that kind of came with me to make time. You know, great insights take time. It's not just uh, a process. It's it's really, you know, peeling back the onion. So The fact that you were born in Montreal and had moved to Toronto at a young age and the fact that you had packed up from Toronto and moved to Kelowna yeah. at a young age, did that make it easier for you to say, hey, I've already done this twice before. I can do it again and move to Calgary. <laughs> I didn't give it much thought, actually. I think, uh, you know, my wife blames it on me being a Gemini. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know what, I like I said, it, it, I guess there's a common theme there of following the snow. And I guess between Kelowna and living in Calgary, having uh, – you know, Banff and Lake Louise just at your finger trips. I, I felt like I was getting paid to go on a two-year ski vacation some days. But uh, <laughs> beautiful country, um, beautiful city. Um, you know, I, I look back what's happened, you know, with, uh, with you know, the, the, the fall in oil prices and the Fort McMurray fires. And, you know, I'm a big donor and, uh, you know, trying to – I hope Calgary gets back to um, the levels that, that it was at when I lived there because it's just an exceptional community, exceptional business community, and um, just had a great time there. So you mentioned, let's mention too, the floods that they've had. It was about a year, year and a half ago as well in Calgary. So they, that's correct. That yeah. province is. And I went back for that stampede, by the way, to support. I, uh, I went, it was the hundredth anniversary of the uh, the stampede, and their motto that year was uh, "Hell or High Water." <laughs> so they uh, they got the grounds in shape, and they hadn't missed one through any of the World Wars. So um, yeah, no, great community there, and. I like that slogan. It shows that they've got a sense of humor, despite <laughs> they, what it certainly do. Yeah, you have had the privilege of working on a number of different clients, but I want to single two of them out: AB InBev and and Boston Pizza. Correct. For those who don't know who uh, AB InBev is, they may not know the name of the company, but give us a couple of brands that some of the listeners might be familiar with. They would. Uh, I mean, they were known as Labatt Breweries of Canada. Here, uh, that was the old shingle still there, but I mean, lead brands are obviously Bud, Bud Light. Um, Corona, um, Alexander Keith's, um, just to name a couple of the, the top brands. And those are dream clients because not only do they have a lot of budget to work with, but they put together some spectacular creative. Absolutely. I mean, working with uh, the, the creative agencies, I mean, you look at, you know, who Labatt and Boston Pizza work with, Boston Pizza with Taxi, um, you know, Labatt had Anomaly, Zulu Alpha Kilo, um, you know, now they're working with Union and, and those guys are great. So, um, you know, it was uh, it was a dream job or uh, I guess should I say the dream job and I just had so much fun on that file. 
And how did you land at Maxis as the managing director? Uh, one thing I've noticed from your LinkedIn profile, you list all the clients you've worked on in previous gigs, but this is one job where you don't list that. I'm assuming it's because all of your clients are your clients? Uh, all of Maxis's clients are your clients? That's correct. I, I do service some specific brands, um, but I, I do work across the enterprise, which is uh, which is great. I mean, you know what? There's there's plenty of business problems to solve, and uh, as um, as head of strategy, um, you know, it's just a again. I, I thought Budweiser was a dream job, but being able to work at at that level and uh, in an area that you know I, I love to do. Um, I'm just very grateful for the opportunity here and to just have such a great portfolio of clients like Bank of Montreal, NBC Universal, um, Nestle Canada, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, just to name a few. And how did you find your way to Maxis in this role? Um, yeah, that's, I, I don't even really know how that happened. How did I land here? I, I didn't even really know much about Maxis. It was so new in the marketplace that it had only been operating for a couple of years. And I, I met Ann Stewart and we kind of talked about, what Maxis is, but uh, more importantly, I guess, uh, her vision of what she wanted it to become. And it just, it sounded amazing. Like um, basically what an agency today should look like and feel like. And, you know, it was, it's not everyday group M opens a fourth product and, and certainly not one in, as the only multinational born in the digital age. So because um, that's yeah. right. Maxis had been around globally for a while before it made the jump Correct. into Toronto. Yeah, I think we're five years young now. But it, when it rolled out, it rolled out in Asia Pacific and Southeast Asia, which was great because, you know, we were getting, you know, tech at pennies on the dollar. So um, that really became, you know, tech and, and digital and data became at the forefront of everything we we do. So it's it was really baked in the structure of the organization and the amount of resources to pull from as, you know, as a business from a business science perspective was just really, really alluring. So, um, you know, that was a big draw and, and what not necessarily what the future looked like today, although the agency is highly successful is what can Maxis be globally, um, within group M and WPP. So, uh, Anne's, Anne's passion, um, basically ticked off every box, um, as an opportunity that you would ever want as a senior operator. So it was a real pleasure when um, she extended the opportunity to join her executive team here. Well, you've been in the role for just over a year now. Has it changed much since you moved into it? Um, yeah. I mean, when I when I first came here, um, there was two managing directors, um, you know, I guess from a, a planning perspective. And we had had the, the agency sort of split between um, major clients um, but then uh, we went through a pretty extensive uh, re restructure as an agency last October um, and reorganized uh, our executive team based on areas of excellence. We have a managing director of business leadership, um, managing director and head of strategy, which be myself. We have, um, you know, a managing director tasked with digital media and emerging technology and a fourth who leads all our trading, both in the marketplace and and with Group M. Um so I guess since I've started, so much has changed. I mean, uh, I'm coming up to two years, but, uh, you know, it's just been every day feels like a new day and we're evolving and I don't know what the end product's going to look like, but, uh, definitely committed and, you know, being what today's agency should be like and feel like and behave like. So what's your biggest challenge then professionally? I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the biggest challenge would be. I mean, 
um, aside from just, you know, really finding that brilliant insight uh, that's going to drive my, my client's business and, and create competitive advantage. Uh, at the same time, you know, I want to make sure that I'm inspiring those around me and I, I, I'm laying down brickwork for a culture that that's based on and celebrates a culture of strategy. I mean, you know, a lot of the times when we have challenges, it, it's an easy fix. Um, the access to our greater global organization, I've never seen anything like that. Um, whether it's a quick email to our chief information officer um, residing out of New York or a global director of technology and digital services in the UK, um, you know, challenges and obstacles are easily overcome with the power of a network behind you. I like that you brought up New York there. Nice segue into my next question because you spend quite a bit of time in New York. Is the culture different down there than it is in Toronto? Because people always talk about New York being very busy, fast paced. You're in at 6 a.m. You're not out till 11. I mean, what's it like down there compared to here? Yeah, I, I mean, I once heard uh, the U.S. media industry um, referred to as this huge hairy animal. And uh, um, from what I've been exposed to, I guess uh, – I mean, that description uh, wasn't far off. I mean, that's any, an interesting description. <laughs> anyone who's ever been to the, the New York upfronts, um, you know, during uh, TV time will, uh, you know, when you're sitting there in Radio City Music Hall and you're looking around going, you know, and this is just trading in, in New York. It's 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 massive. Um, you know, when I I guess any industry of that kind of size and scale is, um, you know, I guess change will will be happening at a at a slower rate, but um, there's just absolutely brilliant things coming out of that market, and uh, you know, a, as there should be. And it's just you know a lot of great things we do here are inspired by you know our counterparts in the New York office. I mean, like I said, the one thing that you know is great about Max is, is we share a, a global culture, and our North American CEO Steve Williams does. Uh, an exceptional job of making sure that North America is aligned in that respect. Um, and when I do go to New York, I mean, it's a lot easier. I don't, I don't feel that grind because I always feel like I'm a special guest or an ambassador of Canada and always welcome. Uh, and it's always time well spent. So um, I take, I always take away incredible learnings from that market. And uh, it really speaks to the leadership, not only of this company, but Group M as a whole. Has the agency world changed much? I mean, looking back at your first days or your first year in the agency world of Vickers and Benson versus what you're doing now. I know your Absolutely. role's a lot different, but how about yeah, just the culture no, and the no, way they completely. work? I mean, it's definitely, it's an adapt or die world. Um, when I started in media, like, I think it was mostly, it was really commodity focused. I always focused on the planning side of things. Um, but, you know, a lot of the decisions you were making were rate driven and, a lot of the time, a lot of your, your strategy would be spent around tactics and execution. Um, but then there's a real big shift sometime around the early, mid-2000s um, when it came more about the consumer. We started putting the consumer and uh, at the forefront and making better connections. And we started using um, words like connection planning and connection planner. And we, you know, strategy I felt, you know, around that time was really lifted to the forefront. And I think, you know, it was primarily due to a shift in client perspective as well. I mean, media started um, being seen as having substantial value within their overall Marcom mixes. And uh, I think it was largely because we had better metrics than our creative agency counterparts. So I guess we can move away from the intuitive and really start, you know, stepping on the gas in terms of data-driven strategies. And, um, you know, even today, I mean, we, 
every every month we're increasingly doing more and more um, with the data available to us. Essentially, is you know evolved where we are today. Um, you know, I mean, most of our clients have a, a DMP or are in the process of standing one up. So, um, you know, we're starting to see data now driving our, our strategic decision making framework uh, a lot more, and I'm starting to see those worlds kind of get mesh together, I guess, more than they ever were. Um, uh, I spend half my day, you know, with data and technology and business sciences and trying to understand how that's going to impact strategy, not just today, um, but, uh, but in the future. So um, again, it's, it's all about uh, what we're gleaning off dashboards and using that to direct strategy versus, you know, two year cumulative surveys, like formerly known as PMB, um, which was literally the only tool that you had at your your access, you know, ten plus years ago in a in a planning department. So our gut instincts completely dead then. You certainly wouldn't hear me talk about <laughs> going with my gut in a meeting. I mean, I, I think that there's a level of experience um, that you develop, especially in terms of how you handle um, situation specific issues. Um, but certainly, I think if anybody's using words like gut instinct or intuitive, I would hard be hard pressed not to crack a smile. I think because um, you know the science that we have at our disposal now, um, you certainly wouldn't be doing your clients any good. Again, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to be politically no, okay. correct on how I handle that because when I started in the business, there was a lot of uh, rationale coming out like I've been doing this 15 years. Dot dot dot. And I think today. You know, somebody with, you know, a good tech background and um, uh, an understanding of data sciences with about five years experience can make better decisions than, you know, industry veterans. So that's really where I'm leaning and, and focusing my time in. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? I don't think, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on, um, you know, what agency you work at or, or the brands you work on. Um, I, I I absolutely think it's all about who you work for. Um, great mentors are everything. You know, these are the people that teach you, that that nurture you. Um, you know, the good ones give you a kick in the pants when you need it. Um, and if they uh, if they do their job right, will absolutely make you fall in love with the business. Um, I've like, heard that before. Like it's my I mean, peer group did. Don't work for a company. You work for work for a boss or work for a person. Pick them. Absolutely it. I, I go back and I think about some of the great mentors I had. Um, you know, I learned just as much from uh, the not so great ones, more like uh, what I didn't want to become in the business. Um, and I have a, a, a checklist of that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the great people, um, the great people that you work with, uh, they inspire you, they teach you, and um, they give you a sense of purpose and, you know, and a, and a bar to measure up to. So, um, I, I, like I said, I, I've been very fortunate to, to have great ones, um, whether that was, you know, at, at Visium with, with Bruce Klassen or, um, the good folks at IPG, you know, who, you know, like Shelly Smith and Peter Mears who hired me on, um, Labatt and, you know, Harvey Carroll, who, you know, allowed me to continue in that role. So, um, I've met some really good people along the way in, in senior leadership roles and, um, it affirms to me that this business will be okay for a long time. 
Scott, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time today. I'm going to close with the same question I ask everyone. Okay. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? <laughs> That's pretty easy. Uh, my dream job would be to host my own weekly fishing show uh, on Saturday mornings. <laughs> and uh, what can I say? I love to fish and uh, I'm totally serious, by the way. So if anyone from Sportsnet is looking to fill gaps <laughs> in their Saturday 5 a.m. rotation, um, I have a script. I have a concept. So call me. Hey, I've seen some of those competitive <laughs> fishing shows. They're wearing shirts full of sponsors like out of a NASCAR race Absolutely. or something like that. I could, so, even, I could do the analysis myself in terms of corporate sponsorship value. So. There's, there's a lot of money behind <laughs> that sport. There is a fishing channel though. Absolutely. And you know what? I think there's a space for me probably about 3.30 in the morning on a <laughs> Tuesday night on WFN, but uh, that would make me very happy. Scott, thanks for stopping by and talking to us I today. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or CastBox. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.